Before the Dawn, A Story of the Fall of Richmond by Joseph A. Altscheller Published by Doubleday, Page, and Company April 1903 Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com Read by John Bruzes You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast before the Dawn was published 12 years before Altscheller published the first volume of the Civil War series, which we did previously on this podcast. Before the Dawn, Chapter 1 A Woman in Brown A tall, well-favored youth, coming from the farther south, boarded the train for Richmond one raw, gusty morning. He carried his left arm stiffly, his face was thin and brown, and his dingy uniform had holes in it, some made by bullets. But his air and manner were happy, as if, escaped from danger and hardships, he rode on his way to pleasure and ease. He sat for a time, gazing out of the window at the gray, wintry landscape that fled past, and then, having a youthful zest for new things, looked at those who traveled with him in the car. The company seemed to him, on the whole, to lack novelty and interest, being composed of farmers going to the capital of the Confederacy to sell food, wounded soldiers like himself, bound for the same place in search of a cure, and one woman who sat in a corner alone, neither speaking nor spoken to, her whole aspect repelling any rash advance. Prescott always had a keen eye for woman and beauty, and owing to his long absence in armies, where both these desirable objects were scarce, his vision had become acute, but he judged that this lone type of her sex had no special charm. Tall, she certainly was, and her figure might be good, but no one with a fair face and taste would dress as plainly as she, nor wrap herself so completely in a long brown cloak that he could not even tell the color of her eyes. Beautiful women, as he knew them, always had a touch of coquetry and never hid their charms wholly. Prescott's attention wandered again to the landscape rushing past, but finding little of splendor or beauty, it came back, by and by, to the lone woman. He wondered why she was going to Richmond, and what was her name. She, too, was now staring out of the window, and the long cloak hiding her seemed so shapeless that he concluded her figure must be bad. His interest declined at once, but rose again with her silence and evident desire to be left alone. As they were approaching Richmond, a sudden jar of the train threw a small package from her lap to the floor. Prescott sprang forward, picked it up, and handed it to her. She received it with a curt thanks, and the noise of the train was so great that Prescott could tell nothing about the quality of her voice. It might or might not be musical, but in any event, she was not polite and showed no gratitude. If he had thought to use the incident as an opening for conversation, he dismissed the idea as she turned her face back to the window at once and resumed her study of the gray fields. Probably old and plain, was Prescott's thought. And then he forgot her in the approach to Richmond, the town where much of his youth had been spent. The absence of his mother from the capital was the only regret in this happy homecoming but he had received a letter from her assuring him of her arrival in the city in a day or two. 
When they reached Richmond, the woman in the brown cloak left the car before him, but he saw her entering the office of the provost marshal, where all passes were examined with minute care, every one who came to the capital in those times of war being considered an enemy until proved a friend. Prescott saw then that she was not only tall, but very tall, and that she walked with a strong, graceful step. After all, her figure may be good, he thought, revising his recent opinion. Her pass was examined, found to be correct, and she left the office before his own time came. He would have asked the name on her pass, but aware that the officer would probably tell him to mind his own business, he refrained and then forgot her in the great event of his return home after so long a time of terrible war. He took his way at once to Franklin Street, where he saw outspread before him life as it was lived in the capital of the Confederate States of America. It was to him a spectacle, striking in its variety and refreshing in its brilliancy, as he had come, though indirectly, from the Army of Northern Virginia, where it was the custom to serve half rations of food and double rations of gunpowder. Therefore, being young, sound of heart, and amply furnished with hope, he looked about him and rejoiced. Richmond was a snug little town, a capital of no great size, even in a region then lacking in city growth. But for the time, more was said about it, and more eyes were turned upon it than upon any other place in the world. Many thousands of men were dying in an attempt to reach the small Virginia city, and many other thousands were dying in an equally strenuous effort to keep them away. Such thoughts, however, did not worry Prescott at this moment. His face was set resolutely toward the bright side of life, which is really half the battle, and neither the damp nor the cold was able to take from him the good spirits that were his greatest treasure. Coming from the bare life of a camp, and the somber scenes of battlefields, he seemed to have plunged into a very whirlwind of gaiety, and his eyes sparkled with appreciation. He did not notice, then, that his captain's uniform was stained and threadbare enough to make him a most disreputable figure in a drawing-room, however gallant he might appear at the head of a forlorn hope. The street was crowded, the pressure of the armies having driven much of the life of the country into the city, and Prescott saw men, women, and children passing, some in rich and some in poor attire. He saw ladies, both young and old, bearing in their cheeks a faint, delicate bloom, the mark of the South, and he heard them as they spoke to each other in their soft, drawling voices, which reminded him of the waters of a little brook falling over a precipice six inches high. It is said that soldiers, after spending a year or two in the serious business of slaying each other, Look upon a woman as one would regard a divinity, a being to be approached with awe and respect, and such emotions sprang into the heart of Prescott when he glanced into feminine faces, especially youthful ones. Becoming suddenly conscious of his rusty apparel and appearance, he looked about him in alarm. Other soldiers were passing, some fresh and trim, some rusty as himself, but a great percentage of both had bandaged limbs or bodies, and he found no consolation in such company, wishing to appear well, irrespective of others. He noticed many red flags along the street, and heard men calling upon the people in loud, strident voices to come and buy. 
At other places, the grateful glow of coal fires shone from half-open doorways, and the faint but positive click of ivory chips told that games of chance were in progress. Half the population is either buying something or losing something, he said to himself. A shout of laughter came from one of the open doorways, beyond which men were staking their money, and a voice, somewhat the worse for a liquid, not water, sang. Little McClellan sat eating a melon, the Chickahominy by. He stuck in his spade, then a long while delayed, and cried, What a brave general am I! I'll wager that you had nothing to do with driving back McClellan, thought Prescott. And then his mind turned to that worn army by the Rapidan, fighting with such endurance, while others lived in fatties here in Richmond. Half a dozen men, English in face and manner, and rolling in their walk like sailors, passed him. He recognized them at once as blockade runners who had probably come up from Wilmington to sell their goods for a better price at the capital. While wondering what they had brought, his attention was distracted by one of the auctioneers, a large man with a red face and tireless voice. "'Come by, come by!' he cried. "'See this beautiful new uniform of the finest gray, a sample of a cargo made in England, and brought over five days ago on a blockade runner to Wilmington.' Looking around in search of a possible purchaser, his eye caught Prescott. "'This will suit you just fine,' he said. "'A change of a strap or two, and it will do for either captain or lieutenant. What a figure you will be in this uniform.' Then he leaned over and said persuasively, "'Better buy it, my boy. Take the advice of a man of experience. Clothes are half the battle. They may not be so on the firing line, but they are here in Richmond.' Prescott looked longingly at the uniform, which in color and texture was all that the auctioneer claimed, and fingered a small package of gold in his pocket. At the moment someone bid fifty dollars, and Prescott surveyed him with interest.' The speaker was a man of his own age, but shorter and darker, with a hawk-like face, softened by black eyes with a faintly humorous twinkle, lurking in the corner of each. He seemed distinctly good-natured, but competition stirred Prescott, and he offered sixty dollars. The other man hesitated, and the auctioneer, who seemed to know him, asked him to bid up. "'This uniform is worth a hundred dollars if it's worth a cent, Mr. Talbot,' he said." "'I'll give you seventy-five dollars cash or five hundred on a credit,' said Talbot. "'Now, which will you take?' "'If I had to take either, I'd take the seventy-five dollars cash, "'and I'd be mighty quick about making a choice,' replied the auctioneer. "'Talbot turned to Prescott and regarded him attentively for a moment or two. "'Then he said, "'You look like a good fellow, and we're about the same size. "'Now, I haven't a hundred dollars in gold, and I doubt whether you have.' Suppose we buy this uniform together and take turns in wearing it. Prescott laughed, but he saw that the proposition was made in entire good faith, and he liked the face of the man whom the auctioneer had called Talbot. I won't do that, he replied, because I have more money than you think. I'll buy this, and I'll lend you enough to help you in buying another. Friendships are quickly formed in wartime, and the offer was accepted at once. The uniforms were purchased, and the two young men strolled on together, each carrying a precious burden under his arm. "'My name's Talbot, Thomas Talbot,' said the stranger. "'I'm a lieutenant, and I've had more than two years' service in the West. "'I was in that charge of Chickamauga when General Cheatham, leading us on, shouted, 
boys, give them hell. And General Polk, who had been a bishop and couldn't swear, looked at us and said, boys, do as General Cheatham says. Well, I got a bad wound in the shoulder there, and I've been invalided since in Richmond, but I'm soon going to join the Army of Northern Virginia. Talbot talked on, and Prescott found him entertaining, as he was a man who saw the humorous side of things, and his speech, being spontaneous, was interesting. The day grew darker and colder. Heavy clouds shut out the sun, and the rain began to fall. The people fled from the streets, and the two officers shivered in their uniforms. The wind rose and whipped the rain into their faces. Its touch was like ice. "'Come in here and wait till the storm passes,' said Talbot, taking his new friend by the arm and pulling him through an open door. Prescott now heard more distinctly than ever the light click of ivory chips, mingled with the sound of many voices in a high or low key, and the soft movement of feet on thick carpets. Without taking much thought, he followed his new friend down a short and narrow hall, at the end of which they entered a large, luxurious room, well-lighted and filled with people. Yes, it's a gambling room, the non-parial, and there are plenty more like it in Richmond, I can tell you, said Talbot. Those who follow war must have various kinds of excitement. Besides, nothing is so bad that it does not have its redeeming point, and these places, without pay, have cared for hundreds and hundreds of our wounded. Prescott had another errand upon which his conscience bade him hasten, but casting one glance through the window, he saw the soaking streets and the increasing rain, swept in wild gusts by the fierce wind. Then the warmth and the light of the place, the hum of talk, and perhaps the spirit of youth enfolded him, and he stayed. There were thirty or forty men in the room, some civilians and other soldiers, two bearing upon their shoulders the stripes of a general. Four carried their arms in slings, and three had crutches beside their chairs. One of the generals was not over twenty-three years of age, but this war furnished younger generals than he, men who won their rank by sheer hard service on great battlefields. The majority of the men were playing pharaoh, roulette, or kino, and the others sat in softly upholstered chairs and talked. Liquors were served from a bar in the corner, where dozens of brightly polished glasses of all shapes and sizes glittered on marble and reflected the light of the gas in vivid colors. Prescott's mind traveled back to long, lonely watches in the dark forest, under snow and rain, in front of the enemy's outposts, and he admitted that while the present might be very wicked, it was also very pleasant. He gave himself up for a little while to the indulgence of his physical senses, and then began to examine those in the room, his eyes soon resting upon the one who was most striking in appearance. It was a time of young men, and this stranger was young like most of the others, perhaps under twenty-five. He was of middle height, very thick and broad, and his frame gave the impression of great muscular strength and endurance. A powerful neck supported a great head, surmounted by a crop of hair like a lion's mane. His complexion was as delicate as a woman's, but his pale blue eyes were bent close to the table as he wagered his money with an almost painful intentness, and Prescott saw that the gaming madness was upon him. Talbot's eyes followed Prescott's, and he smiled. I don't wonder that you are looking at Raymond, he said. He is sure to attract attention anywhere. You are beholding one of the most remarkable men the South has produced. 
Prescott recognized the name as that of the editor of The Patriot, a little newspaper published on a press traveling in a wagon with the Western Army until a month since, when it had come over to the Army of Northern Virginia. The Patriot was little only in size. The wit, humor, terseness, spontaneous power of expression, and above all the phrase-making, which its youthful editor showed in its columns, already had made Raymond a power in the Confederacy, as they were destined in his maturity to win him fame in a reunited nation. He's a great gamester and thinks that he's a master of chance, said Talbot. But as a matter of fact, he always loses. See how fast his pile of money is diminishing? It will soon be gone, but he will find another resource. You watch him. Prescott did not need the advice, as his attention was already concentrated on Raymond's broad, massive jaw and the aggressive curve of his strong face. His movements were quick and nervous. Face and figure alike expressed the most absolute self-confidence. Prescott wondered if this self-confidence did not lie at the basis of all success, military, literary, mercantile, or other, enabling one's triumphs to cover up his failures and make the people remember only the former. Raymond continued to lose, and presently, all his money being gone, he began to feel in his pockets in an absent-minded way for more, but the hand came forth empty from each pocket. He did not hesitate. A man, only two or three years older, was sitting next to Raymond, and he too was intent on the game. Beside him was a very respectable little heap of golden notes, and Raymond, reaching over, took half the money, and without a word, putting it in front of himself, went on with his wagers. The second man looked up in surprise, but seeing who had robbed him, merely made a wry face and continued his game. Several who had noticed the action laughed. It's Raymond's way, said Talbot. I knew that he would do it. That's why I told you to watch him. The other man is Winthrop. He's an editor, too, one of our Richmond papers. He isn't a genius like Raymond, but he's a slashing writer, loves to criticize anybody from the president down, and he often does it. He belongs to the FFVs himself, but he has no mercy on them, shows up all their faults. While you can say that gambling is Raymond's amusement, you may say with equal truth that dueling is Winthrop's. Dueling? exclaimed Prescott in surprise. Why, I never saw a milder face. Oh, he doesn't fight duels from choice, replied Talbot. It's because of his newspaper. He's always criticizing, and here, when a man is criticized in print, he challenges the editor. And the funny thing about it is that although Winthrop can't shoot or fence at all, he's never been hurt. Providence protects him, I suppose. Has he ever hit anybody? asked Prescott. Only once, replied Talbot, and that was his eleventh duel since the war began. He shot his man in the shoulder and then jumped up and down in his pride. I hit him! I hit him! he cried. Yes, Winthrop, said his second. Someone was bound to get in the way if you kept on shooting long enough. The place, with its rich colors, its lights shining from glasses and mirrors, its mellow odors of liquids, and its softened sounds, began to have a soporific effect upon Prescott, used so long to the open air and untold hardships. His senses were pleasantly lulled, and the voice of his friend, whom he seemed now to have known a long time, came from far away. He could have closed his eyes and gone to sleep, but Talbot talked on.
Here you see the back door of the Confederacy, he said. You men at the front know nothing. You are merely fighting to defend the main entrance. But while you are getting yourselves shot to pieces without knowing any special reason why, all sorts of people slip in at this back door. It is true not only of this government, but also of all the others. A middle-aged, heavy-faced man in a general's uniform entered and began to talk earnestly to one of the other generals. That is General Markham, said Talbot, who is specially interesting, not because of himself, but on account of his wife. She is years younger than he, and is said to be the most brilliant woman in Richmond. She has plans for the general, but is too smart to say what they are. I doubt whether the general himself knows. Raymond and Winthrop presently stopped playing, and Talbot promptly introduced his new friend. We should know each other, since we belong to the same army, said Raymond. You fight, and I write, and I don't know which of us does the more damage. But the truth is, I've but recently joined the Army of Northern Virginia. I've been following the Army in the West, but the news didn't suit me there, and I've come east. I hope that you have many victories to chronicle, said Prescott. It's been a long time since there's been a big battle, resumed the editor, and so I've come up to Richmond to see a little life. He glanced about the room. And I see it here, he added. I confess that the flesh pots of Richmond are pleasant. Then he began to talk of the life in the capital, the condition of the army and the Confederate states, furnishing a continual surprise to Prescott, who now saw that beneath the man's occasional frivolity and epicurean tastes lay a mind of wonderful penetration, possessing that precious quality generally known as insight. He revealed a minute knowledge of the Confederacy and its chieftains, both civil and military, but he never risked an opinion as to its ultimate chances of success, although Prescott waited with interest to hear what he might say upon this question, one that had often troubled himself. But however near Raymond might come to the point, he always turned gracefully away again. They were sitting now in a cheerful corner as they talked, but at the table nearest them was a man of forty, with immense square shoulders, a heavy red face, and an overbearing manner. He was playing pharaoh and losing steadily, but every time he lost, he marked the moment with an angry exclamation. The others, players and spectators alike, seemed to avoid him, and Winthrop, who noticed Prescott's inquiring glance, said, "'That's Redfield, a member of our Congress, and he named the Gulf State from which Redfield came.' He belonged to the legislature of his state before the war, which he advocated with all the might of his lungs, no small power, I assure you, and he was leader in the shouting that one southern gentleman could whip five Yankees. I don't know whether he means that he's the southern gentleman, as he's never yet been on the firing line, but he's distinguishing himself just now by attacking General Lee for not driving all the Yankees back to Washington." Redfield at length left the game, uttering with an oath his opinion that fair play was impossible in the non-pareil, and turned to the group seated near him, regarding the Richmond editor with a lowering brow. "'I say, Winthrop,' he cried, "'I've got a bone to pick with you. You've been hitting me pretty hard in that rag of yours. Do you know what a public man down in the Gulf States does with an editor who attacks him?' 
Why, he goes around to his office and cowhides the miserable little scamp until he can't lie down comfortably for a month. A slight pink tint appeared in the cheeks of Winthrop. I'm not well informed about the custom in the Gulf States, Mr. Redfield, he said. But here I am always at home to my enemies, as you ought to know. Oh, nonsense, exclaimed Raymond. You two can't fight. We can't afford to lose Redfield. He's going to lead a brigade against the Yankees. And if he'll only make one of those fiery speeches of his, it will scare all the bluebacks out of Virginia. Redfield's face flushed to a deeper hue, and he regarded the speaker with aversion, but said nothing in reply, fearing Raymond's sharp tongue. Instead, he turned upon Prescott, who looked like a mild youth fit to stand much hectoring. "'You don't introduce me to your new friend,' he said to Talbot. "'Mr. Redfield, Captain Prescott,' said Talbot. "'Mr. Redfield is a member of Congress, "'and Captain Prescott comes from the Army of Northern Virginia, "'though by way of North Carolina, "'where he has been recently on some special duty.' "'Ah, from the Army of Northern Virginia,' said Redfield in a heavy growl. "'Then can you tell me, Mr. Prescott, "'why General Lee does not drive the Yankees out of Virginia?' A dark flush appeared on Prescott's face. Usually mild, he was not always so, and he worshipped General Lee. "'I think it's because he does not have the help of men like yourself,' he replied. A faint ray of a smile crossed the face of Raymond, but the older man was not pleased. "'Do you know, sir, that I belong to the Confederate Congress?' he exclaimed angrily. "'And moreover, I am a member of the military committee. I have a right to ask these questions.' Then, replied Prescott, you should know that it is your duty to ask them of General Lee, and not of me, a mere subaltern. Now, Mr. Redfield, intervened Raymond, don't pick a quarrel with Captain Prescott. If there's to be a duel, Winthrop has first claim on you, and I insist for the honor of my profession that he have it. Moreover, since he is slender, and you are far from it, I demand that he have two shots to your one, as he will have at least twice as much to kill. Redfield growled out other angry words, which stopped under the cover of his heavy mustache, and then turned abruptly away, leaving Prescott in some doubt as to his personal courage, but none at all as to his ill will. It is the misfortune of the South, said Raymond, to have such men as that, who think to settle public questions by personal violence. They give us a bad name, which is not wholly undeserved. In fact, personal violence is our great sin. And the man has a lot of power. That's the worst of it, added Talbot. The boys at the front are hauled around so much by the politicians that they are losing confidence in everybody here in Richmond. Why, when President Davis himself came down and reviewed us with a great crowd of staff officers before Missionary Ridge, the boys all along the line set up the cry, Give us something to eat, Mr. Jeff. Give us something to eat. We're hungry. We're hungry. And that may be the reason why we were thrashed so badly by Grant not long after. Prescott saw that the rain had almost ceased, and as he suggested that he must hurry on, the others rose to go with him from the house. He left them at the next corner, glad to have made such friends, and quickened his footsteps as he continued alone.